Making Sense of the Digital Society A podcast with answers to the big questions of digitalization. For everyone who wants to be in the know about the many debates. But we are not only trying to make sense of the digital society, we are also demystifying some of its buzzwords. Making Sense of the Digital Society is also a series of live lectures in Berlin that I have moderated since early 2018. My name is Tobi Müller and I am the presenter of this podcast. We cover a wide range of questions, such as how do we want to actively shape a digital world? How can these processes be aligned with public interest? What kind of knowledge do we need for this? What are the underlying changes in society beyond the hype over new technological developments? What is power in the digital society and how is it distributed? Do services fueled by algorithms and artificial intelligence improve our lives or do they enforce social inequalities? And what role do cities play in this transformation like infrastructure and public goods? We combine summaries from the lecture series Making Sense of the Digital Society and conversations with international experts. You will hear renowned scientists talk about their research and discuss key issues. Their topics are diverse. Complex problems need attention from various disciplines in order to come closer to an understanding of the time we live in now and want to live in tomorrow. Do you sometimes wonder why certain videos that pop up in your timeline are the ones that you actually did want to see? And how do computers recognize objects, faces or animals in photos? Whether you are filling out an online form, posting a photo on Instagram, following recommended adverts or videos, algorithms make up a huge part of our daily experiences. Therefore, algorithms are often criticized for manipulating our behavior. In this episode, we will dive deep into the field of artificial intelligence and algorithms. In the following conversation, titled Rhythm of Algo, you will hear Wuta Bernhardt in conversation with Björn Scheuermann, who tells us about the logic behind algorithms. Björn Scheuermann has a background in computer science and mathematics and is one of the directors at the Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society, HIG. In his research, he's focusing on the tech aspects of computer science, like the actual building of computers, as well as IT security. Scheuermann now explains what algorithms have in common with a baking recipe and how far he trusts algorithm-based machines. You were from an early age interested in coding. You were interested in yeah, basically writing computer language and let a computer do a certain task. Maybe on a very basic level, could you describe to me what coding actually is and how an algorithm works in terms of giving a computer a task? Yeah, essentially, a computer is a machine which can do any computation task. And any computation task, that gives you a huge uh, field of what you can do, obviously, any computing task. So you have to tell the computer what exactly to compute. And if we leave away all the computer language and all the technology behind it, then it essentially boils down to something like maybe a baking recipe. A baking recipe tells you what to do. And a baking recipe, therefore, is a good example of an algorithm in one sense, because uh, 
you you get a, a sequence of steps and you follow these steps and then hopefully with a bit of luck you get the result that you intend uh, so it's like performing a computation in a very wide sense and the recipe tells you how to do it it's not a good example because recipes often leave uh, certain aspects open you still need some experience you do it right if you are extremely picky then often the formulations in a recipe are not uh, perfectly unambiguous in the sense that if you really want to get it wrong then you can do awful things and still in a sense stick to the recipe but if you consequently think this to an end and you try to write down the recipe in an absolutely unambiguous way then you're pretty close to an, to an algorithm if there's really only one possible interpretation of what to do so that even a totally dump machine which has no idea what it's doing will always do exactly what you intended, given that you uh, correctly wrote down what you intended. Now, I can vaguely remember when I had maths, and I wasn't great at maths, but I can rem remember that we talked about algorithms. Logically, in math uh, class, we had an understanding of what an algorithm was, but actually only recently have I seen this, this term coming back in the public domain again, and I've started to realize or encounter it and start to think, what is this actually? People are talking about all oh, the algorithms, they, they decide what we see on the internet and what kind of advertisement we see and what kind of uh, movies you click on in YouTube, I, I found it very interesting that a lot of people describe the algorithms I, I heard in a sort of a negative way. They say the algorithms, they are the, the thing that, that manipulate us, that do something to us. Do we actually know what these algorithms actually do on the internet? For example, when I am on YouTube and I see all these clips recommended to me, is there anybody out there that knows why this particular algorithm is showing me these things? Um, in one sense, yes. In another sense, often no. The thing that is hard to grasp for many people about this, uh, who are not used to thinking in terms of algorithms for a long time, is uh, that this is all just computations, but uh, very complex computations which uh, take a lot of data as their input so uh, to break this down to to something probably you and many other people will remember from from school if um, you have a triangle and you know the the length of two of its sides and you know the angle between these uh, two sides then you can even if you don't exactly remember how you can compute the length of the third side of the triangle so there's a formula for this and such a formula is like the most basic form of an algorithm because uh, you know what the input is the length of two sides and the angle between these And uh, then you know which sequence of steps you need to take to come up with uh, the result that you intend. And now the very same concept with much more complicated computations is uh, what is behind an algorithm and also what is behind an algorithm in the field of artificial intelligence. Just that the input is not just the two lengths and the angle, but uh, a huge pile of data, for instance, uh, collected by by YouTube users. So uh, the uh, 
Input to these computations could be what have millions and millions of, of YouTube users watched over the last few months. And then you in this data, you have information like uh, people who clicked this video have also spent quite some time watching that video. This information in this, this data is obviously intuitively there. So uh, if you are watching the same video as many other people, then... Um, you might also be interested in the same videos these other people have found in this, this huge pile of video material on YouTube before. And uh, then there's the question, how can you dig this out? So what step of steps of computation do you need to do if uh, you have all this information in the background as input plus the input what you have watched recently and uh, then as the output, uh, not having the length of the third side of a triangle, but uh, as the output having a list of, of numbers of videos on YouTube that uh, might uh, correlate with what you are interested in. So the algorithm is a sequence of steps in order to solve a problem. In that sense, an algorithm is not that hard to understand, though with the introduction of terms like artificial intelligence and machine learning, things get a slightly bit more complicated. Listen to Björn explaining how a computer program is capable of correctly identifying a picture of an animal without ever having seen that picture before. You said it already once or twice. Could you maybe um, once more uh, give me a sort of terminology about what machine learning actually is? So machine learning is, uh, coming back to what I said before, a clever way of doing statistics. You, you have an algorithm which takes input data and uh, in many cases this means you have labeled input data as it's called in computer science. So uh, for instance, you have pictures and they are labeled with uh, which type of animal do you see on that picture. And then you put this as input data into the algorithm and the algorithm does uh, lots of complicated computations and lots of statistics, but in clearly understandable steps where it wouldn't even take long, at least among computer scientists, to explain to someone else uh, what exactly which uh, type of computations are done, so what the computer does. And what comes out is uh, a so-called model and that model represents, again, just in a specifically structured data, what uh, statistical interrelations between the pixels, so the color points in the, in the images, and the classification result, that is the label, which animal is it, have been discovered. Which, in essence, is kind of the same as how a human would learn the difference between, say... Cats and dogs. Looking at uh, thousands of pictures of different animals during their youth, learning this is a dog and this is a cat and this is a rabbit and uh, this is a duck, etc. Then probably if you have all these, these pictures used for learning on the wall and you have the, the next picture and the task is to find out what animal is on this picture based on what you have learned from all the pictures on the wall, probably a human would be able to stand in front of the wall and say, yeah, it looks like, like this picture. And uh, our abilities to construct machine learning algorithms, which are able to do the same thing, 
is uh, still very limited. So there are some steps in this direction, but it makes the algorithm more complicated because you want not only the result, but in addition to the result, you want that explanation. The key novelty here is, uh, in a sense, just the scale of the computation. So uh, the first algorithms in computer science, where computer science is coming from, they were quite simple. And uh, they were dealing with... Uh, due to the capacity of early computers, also quite limited amounts of data, at least limited from today's viewpoint. And today we have amounts of data and computation speeds which uh, lead to results that uh, no human could possibly uh, reproduce with uh, a sheet of paper and a pencil, not even given... Uh, an entire lifetime or the remaining time of the existence of this universe. And uh, that uh, results in it being hard to, um, to understand why this result comes out, because we have no other way of obtaining this result than running the algorithm on a computer. And if you, if you take that one step further, what could be the problem with that? The difficulty of checking where a certain result comes from? Um, like if we can't really check yeah, anymore well, how a certain course, result yeah. comes out, then, then um, how do we rely upon that information? Yeah, of course, we humans want explanations and we want that finger pointing to a specific single reason. But uh, in a way, since it's all computations on huge piles of data, machine learning and what we call artificial intelligence is nothing but statistics. It's a sophisticated and uh, in terms of its methods, sometimes novel way of doing statistics. So we have this data, we see patterns in that data, and we draw in a wide sense, conclusions from these patterns. Essentially, uh, there's this person, uh, going back to your YouTube example, watching the following five videos on YouTube. And then statistics, in a wide sense, tell us that uh, people who have watched these videos were also happy with uh, these other videos. Maybe happy just in the sense that they didn't stop them right after they started. And um, then computing the results that these are the other videos to be recommended is just a matter of actually not so complicated statistics. And uh, recognizing which type of animal you see on a picture through machine learning is also just a very sophisticated way of, of doing statistics. And this super sophisticated way of doing statistics builds on so much input data and tangles them together in, uh, in so long and so many computation steps that uh, simply in this pile of input data, you can't pinpoint the one single data item that led to the outcome. And that's what uh, bothers humans. You clearly having an oversight of what computing is, algorithms, uh, studying this topic for quite a long time, being the director of the institute, um, you clearly have less of an issue of sort of trusting these algorithms and the computing. Whereas you said 
humans in general have an issue not understanding precisely where this specific result comes from. Um, do you see it as one of the main tasks in trying to convince people to do trust the computers a bit more? Mm, I fully trust the computers, which does not mean that I always trust the outcome of uh, machine learning based classification algorithm because uh, the outcome depends on the model and the model depends on the input data used for training the model, for learning, uh, so for extracting these uh, statistical interrelations. So if uh, you have an input data set where each uh, dog on one of these images is labeled as a pig, then it will learn the wrong things. If you have an input data set where you have thousands of pictures of dogs and thousands of pictures of cats and only one single picture of a rabbit, then uh, the algorithm will likely not be particularly good at uh, recognizing other uh, rabbit pictures correctly because... Uh, so in human terms, we would say it doesn't have enough experience with that. But uh, in, in more technical terms, it's just it doesn't have enough input to really discover what the statistical features are that should be present in an image to uh, make it plausible that it should be labeled a rabbit. So uh, I fully trust that the computations done by the algorithm apply the statistical model correctly and that the computations performed by the learning algorithm which builds that model from the sample input data does its job perfectly right. Oh, 100% trust in that. But that doesn't mean that I fully trust all the conclusions drawn from that statistical model. Uh, maybe as a last question, sort of a more meta level, uh, the research into all of this. Um, when you see your own research and you see people doing research here at the, at the HIG, um, what are the challenges that people have researching algorithms and in relation to maybe artificial intelligence? Where do you see the, the research going and what do you see as the hurdles for this particular type of research? I think the, the main hurdle is that getting an intuitive understanding of what is technologically going on is still very hard if you're not deep on the techie side. So um, I think computer scientists need to try much harder to explain what exactly they are doing in simple terms. And uh, I think it uh, has been for a long time and still is the key challenge in that uh, regard. As Björn Scheuermann just described, algorithms influence almost every part of our daily life. From being used for advertising or influencing your media usage, they detect anomalies in the landscape of medical images to drone footage. They are trained to be precise, to divine high probabilities. Algorithms are about certainty. But is this really the only goal? And where does certainty turn out to be problematic and lead to undesired, even discriminatory results? This is what Louis Amor takes into account in her talk titled Our Lives with Algorithms, held in July 2019. Louis Amor talks about the role of doubt in algorithmic design, about opacity, which means a certain lack of transparency in how algorithmic arrangement generates idea of the good, the normal, and the risky. Louis Amor is a professor of geography at Durham University in the northeast of England. 
Her research focuses on global geopolitics and border control, especially when related to the role of data in risk management. She has worked on a major research project called The Ethics of Algorithms, which led to her latest book, Cloud Ethics. It's a real honor to be here. It's a kind of lifelong ambition, actually, to speak at the Humboldt, so I'm just delighted to be here. And in particular, to be invited to speak about your theme, Making Sense of the Digital. Because what I would like to do, if I may, is to just shift that preposition in making sense of the digital to think about what it means to make sense in a digital world. How are digital processes changing sense-making so that we make sense of ourselves and our relations with others in new ways with machine learning algorithms? So in my lecture this evening, I would like to explore with you some deep neural network algorithms. Don't be afraid. I will take it step by step. And I want to suggest that these algorithms are changing the nature of how we make sense of ourselves, from decisions about a person's creditworthiness in the world of finance or their degree of riskiness in the criminal justice system, to the life and death decisions about what might be the optimal treatment pathways in cancer treatment or who should be permitted to cross a border, I want to suggest that increasingly our lives and our life chances are becoming ever more entangled with the adjudications of algorithms. Now, of course, you might say, well, these are very different aspects of our lives, policing, borders and immigration, the health system. And you might wish to say that machine learning is acting ethically in some aspects of our lives and not in others. That might be the direction we might want to go in as a society. So when an oncologist who specialized in a rare form of head and neck cancer told me that his deep neural networks that he felt he was collaborating with, he said they're making possible vast improvements in detection and treatment. And we might say, well, look, here is the good. Here is the ethical use of machine learning for a responsible society. But what I want to get us to begin to think about this evening is how one might begin to draw that line between the good and the bad, or what we think of as the unethical and the ethical in relation to machine learning algorithms. So a team of computer scientists that I followed throughout 2017 had been working precisely on new methods for tumor recognition and for the targeting of particular treatments for specific tumors. We might again say, here is the good use of machine learning. But they had developed their expertise as a team also in the detection of what they called problem gambling. You can see a short extract from my interview with them there. So the online gambling company Betfair had asked them to use machine learning to detect the patterns of online gambling and detect what the anomalies might be. They had also worked for two years on object recognition from the video stream data of drone footage for a major military company. 
In each case, as they described it to me, they said, the fundamental thing is we know what good looks like. We know what good looks like. And they said because they'd clustered the data in a way that would show them what normal or good looked like, that then they could detect anomalies. So for them, in a sense, the problem space was the same across all of those different domains of society. They were telling me, we know what addicted play online or diseased tissue in the MRI scans of the human body or a civilian vehicle through the video lens of the drone looks like. We know what good looks like. So I want to propose to you this evening that this designation of the good and the bad, which so many societies are feeling they have to respond to, you know, how do we embrace forms of machine learning for the good of society? This designation of the good, the bad, the ethical, the unethical, or even human versus machine decisions, is not at all a straightforward matter when it comes to our lives with algorithms. So notwithstanding the widespread public claims that the black box of the algorithm should be opened up, that we should make sense of it, that algorithms must be made accountable for their actions, I want to say instead the prime question should not be how should algorithms be arranged for the good of society because their arrangements are changing the paradigm of what good means in society. We know what good looks like. So rather than beginning with that question of how to make them good or normal, I want to say instead a pose a different question. How are algorithmic arrangements generating ideas of the good, the normal, the transgressive, and the risky? So it seems to me that in our contemporary moment, when targeting and deciding is taking place increasingly in collaboration with machine learning algorithms, that the reflex response, public response, is often to say, well, these are autonomous technologies and they are unaccountable. They are machines, if you like, making decisions beyond the human capacity for scrutiny. In the terms of your themes, we cannot make sense of them, right? That they are somehow concealed from us. But to draw to a close, I want to suggest that actually the harm done is not primarily the ceding of human control to machine decision. Now, the principal harm, I think, is a specific threat to the notion that we live together and we decide uncertainly in the face of difficult and intractable dilemmas. And that is politics, I think. That is political life. So the claim to secure against uncertain futures with algorithms forecloses other potential futures, even where the neural net itself, as I've described, embodies a teeming multiplicity of pathways that were not taken. So when the algorithm condenses a single actionable output, I would like us always to remember that this output signal lies behind actions like risk scoring at borders or the potential 
future of a child in relation to social services. Increasingly in the UK, this is being used to make differentiations between different levels of at-risk children in society. Decisions on detention, on immigration, or on the dangers of a gathered protest on a city street. So for me, there can be no algorithmic accountability in the Enlightenment traditions of transparency or clear-sighted account. That means no way of having a code of ethics that we might say all algorithm developers and designers should sign up to. No opening of the black box. Instead, I think we could demand that algorithms give a necessarily partial account of themselves. It seems to me that this is not a new problem, in a sense. The impossibility of giving an account is the precondition of politics, of the difficulty of decision. Philosophers and political theorists have been talking about that for a very long time, the impossibility of that clear-sighted account. So in some ways, algorithms don't pose a new problem, but they do expose very vividly a persistent problem of grounding ethics and responsibility in ideas of objective sight and knowledge. As the philosopher Judith Butler reminds us, we do not reach the limits of ethics at the edge of intelligibility where we can no longer make sense. On the contrary, she says, it's at the limits of what can be rendered intelligible or known that ethics becomes most crucial. So in your terms, perhaps ethics begins with sense-making, with imagining different ways of sense-making. So at the heart of my call for a different mode of ethics that in my new book I call a cloud ethics, there are three proposals of a kind, and I'm going to conclude by just mapping what they are. So first, I'm proposing we must rethink what ethics means in relation to algorithms so that it is no longer a question of imagining that we stand outside and adjudicate on their behaviour. The philosopher Michel Foucault, in common with many other political theorists, distinguishes different forms of ethics. And so on the one hand, he talked about the code that determines which acts are permitted and which forbidden. For me, that could almost describe, you know, the sense that there's a Silicon Valley problem and if we could just delineate what could be forbidden and what could be permitted, that we would make some kind of progress. And I think that his sense that this is a limited form of ethics perhaps comes from his own work on the governing of norms in relation to sexuality. So he distinguishes that from a different kind of ethics he describes as the inescapably political formation of the relation of oneself to oneself and to others. So the inescapably political formation. And this distinction, I think, could be crucial because which acts are permitted and which are forbidden, I think, is a sheltered form of ethics in which we will be continually trying to adjudicate on when algorithms step over the line. Perhaps we might talk about that some more uh, in questions. But actually, what are they doing in terms of what I've described tonight? They're functioning precisely through a reorientation of selves to selves and others through this inescapably political formation. And I think that's what I want to try to 
to work with, this sense that algorithms mean that we are still struggling with this sense of a political formation and what might it mean in the context of machine learning. So then second, I would like to think that we could reconsider the output and what it means in our world, that we might be able to reflect on it differently so that the output of the algorithm is never understood as determining a decision. And so I would like us to think, instead of thinking of outputs, I would like us to think about something like an aperture. So for those of us who are you know, working on notions of, of aperture from the arts or photography, the aperture is always both a closure, a reduction in a closure, but also an opening. So it might be able to open out and think about what were the other alternative ways of reasoning that might have been present before that closing down took place. We should make some trouble, I think, at the aperture, as the feminist Donna Haraway suggests. We should stay with the trouble and, as she describes it, follow the threads in the dark. So even in the face of reduced outputs, I think we could consider the traces of rejected alternatives. And for me, this has been a kind of thought experiment. I've tried to exercise it in relation to facial recognition biometrics, for example. So you might know that in April, a Brown University student in the US who has uh, Sri Lankan parents, Amara Majid, was identified, misidentified by the Sri Lankan authorities as having a link to the Sri Lankan uh, bombings. And the apology that was issued by the Sri Lankan authorities said the facial recognition system misidentified her, by which point, of course, she had death threats in her inbox. Now, I think if we see only that the output of the algorithm as being a mistake or misrecognition, we might then lose sight of what I think could have been going on in the aperture, which is that when she was a teenager, she wrote an open letter to Donald Trump expressing her concern about the targeting of Muslims. She is also has a project called the Hijab Project. There are multiple other forms and lines of narrative and story that make that designation of her as a risky person not a mistake or an error at all. Does that make sense? So if we think with the aperture, we don't say... It's, a, it's just made an error and mistake. It can be fixed. We can modify. Instead, we say, well, actually, what were those other potential links and correlations that it was working with? So that would mean, if we were to go with this thought experiment, that every time we're confronted with something like an algorithm that says, here is an optimized output, this is optimization that our first thought would be, yes, and what were the rejected alternatives? What other forms of connection and being together that are not already explained might be present? How could the output have been otherwise? What are the bifurcated pathways that continue to run beneath the surface of an optimised solution? And finally, the weights. I wish to make the weights in the deep learning algorithms a lot heavier and more burdensome. And a few generous computer science friends of mine have urged me not to pursue this and have said that this is not something that we should do. So 
they have described it to me and said, look, the adjustment of weights is an impenetrable process that retains its opacity even to those who are undertaking it. So one of them said to me, you cannot make the weights political, Louise, because they're not really a thing. We don't know how they work. We are just messing around with them. But it's exactly, I think they didn't realise at the time, I think, how this, you know, how this was music to my ears, that it was something that was opaque and that they were messing around with them. Because it's exactly this kind of opaque, messy and embodied experimental relation to the algorithm and its data that interests me. As Butler says, a certain opacity persists. So when the judge, the oncologist, the clinician, or the border guard decides with algorithms, I think they also necessarily don't know how they work. They are just messing around with them. So some of the most fundamental political and crucial uh, decisions of our times are being made, I think, through this modified and fungible notion of what can come to matter. And so there it is, I think our lives with algorithms, the inescapably political formation of relations to ourselves and to others. Thank you. If this topic has raised your interest, you may also want to check out the conceptual papers about the concept of filter bubble and transparency in artificial intelligence. The concept of the filter bubble suggests that search engines and social media, together with their recommendation and personalization algorithms, are culpable for polarization seen in many countries. One of the questions discussed is, can we criticize social media companies for failing to prevent filter bubbles as enablers of Brexit, Trump, Bolsonaro and other populist political phenomena? The paper about transparency in artificial intelligence addresses the issues of transparency from sociolegal and computer scientific perspectives. All materials mentioned in this podcast and a large number of other interesting resources can be found at hiig.de slash making minus sense and bpb.de slash digital society in one word. Making Sense of the Digital Society is a production of the Alexander von Humboldt Institute for Internet and Society and the Federal Agency for Civic Education. My name is Toby Müller and I hope you have enjoyed this podcast. Editing and production, Christian Graufogel and Filine Janus. Executive producer, Christian Graufogel. Sound design and recording, Juri Bader. <laughs>